Good morning, good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Black Table Talk. This is our daring dialogue that we host here usually on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. I have been out for about a week now um, because I had to deal with some family medical emergencies, but I am back and um, am excited about continuing our reading. So if you've been with us for a, a, any length of time, you know that Tuesdays is the time that we go live here on Black Tabletop, where we share things, all things Black whether it be black politics, what's happening in um, black society, what's happening with our colleges, what's happening just um, overall in the world that concerns us as black people, we share it on this page. So if you have found us for the first time, I want to say thank you uh, for sharing, for following, for liking the page. Um, we've seen our viewer membership on this page just, just continue to go up. So I do want to thank you all for following, sharing, liking the page, and exposing this page to other people because our goal is to put out into the world what concerns us. We are back in the book called Black Women, Black Love. We've been reading through this book for, I would say, maybe a few months now. Um, so we have been reading all the way through it. Normally, sometimes I will pull a book and we'll read an excerpt from the book. But because so much is happening in the world with Black love, Black relationships, um, who loves who and who doesn't love who, and the manosphere and the womanosphere and all of those different things that have been being talked about in our society, um, people who don't necessarily represent reality and truth when it comes to the Black love experience in America, I chose this book because um, Dr. Diane M. Stewart does a fabulous job of detailing the history of Black women in the United States, the history of our desire and our struggle um, and our passion towards Black men and Black love and the institution of marriage. So. I wanted to read this book because oftentimes we hear so many talking points about what it is black women want and who black women want um, that we often um, sort of exclude the historical record from the conversation. And so what we've been doing is we've been going back and we've been trying to build what is the historical record for black women. Um, and the reality is we have always loved black men. We have always um, tried to fight for black men. We've always tried to fight for our freedom to love black men. And we've always, um, for the most part, tried to stand by black men. So any other narrative that you're hearing out there, this is a great book to read um, that will help you to counteract some of these narratives that we're hearing in our society that do not reflect upon our historical truth as a people. So we are actually reading from the chapter, Will Black Women Ever Have It All? Because there are some things that are happening 
um, because of this long chain of historical struggle, this long chain of historical events that is affecting who Black women love and how Black women love. But it's not just something that is um, happening in a box. So the last part of what we're going to be reading today, we're going to talk about wealthlessness and marriageability. We're going to talk about how the marriage, the black marriage decline transcends social class because some people are saying, well, only a certain social class of black people are having a decline in marriage. We're going to talk about reconsidering the sources of America's patriarchal marriage ideal. OMG. Oh, we're going to get into it today. We're going to get into it today. I think we probably will have enough time just to do those three sections. But then there's a section after that um, that we should get to next week. And that is single black mothers who have become the scapegoats for the failures of patriarchal marriage. Because people love to put stuff on single black mothers. So we definitely got to get into that as well. All right, but today we're going to talk about again wealthlessness in marriage, wealthlessness and marriageability, and we're going to talk about this something actually I've been talking about for the last two weeks because I keep seeing it come up, and that is America's patriarchal marriage ideal, and I want to say white patriarchal marriage ideal because we do recognize right that there are African societies that are patrilineal. And there are also African societies that are matrilineal. And then there are societies that are both, where um, both male and female kind of lead the structure. But for some reason, well, we know the reason, <laughs> we've taken on in the black community, white male patriarchal norms and ideals. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say it here again. Anytime you're trying to superimpose their ideals on top of a black family, you're going to have problems because the origin of their ideals really has to do with suppression and oppression. And the origin of our ideals do not. So you're going to have conflict and you're going to butt heads. The more that black men feed into an ideal that calls for the oppression, suppression, um, devaluing, dehumanizing of women and children, you're going to have a problem. It is what it is. So let's jump into it. Wealthlessness and marriageability. While social scientists correctly point out that marriageability is often loosely defined or not defined at all in many discussions of low marriage rates among African Americans, the concern about a potential mate's financial stability emerges as a high priority according to the data collected from both black men and women. In a 2009 study that analyzed survey results from 344 black women and men, researchers found that overwhelmingly both black women and men desired spouses whose salaries significantly surpassed their own. Now, let's just say that 344 is a really small pool of research results to be making these kinds of suppositions. I'll put it that way. 
So we just got to keep that in mind. This is a pool of 344 people that they're getting their data from, not 13,344 people. Okay, 344. Most respondents indicated the strong desire to acquire and sustain middle-class status through spousal income. And this smaller study mirrors results from a national 2010 Pew Foundation study of social and demographic, demographic trends, which showed that African-Americans prioritize financial stability over other racial ethnic groups. Well, wouldn't it make sense to prioritize financial stability if you come from a lineage that hasn't had financial stability and has been suppressed in its ability to have financial stability? Doesn't that make sense to do that? Okay, let's keep reading. Income and wealth potential appear to be strong indicators of whether black men feel prepared to marry. But even black men who earn lucrative salaries marry less often and later than their white counterparts. And more research is needed to understand why. <clears throat> Any black men out there who wants to put in the chat your reason why you might want to <laughs> marry later in life and make sure you have a lucrative salary. You can put it in the chat for us because they want to understand why. According to the family law professor, Ralph Banks, black men who are employed and economically stable are less likely to have ever married than white men with comparable incomes. Moreover, the marriage gap between black men and white men actually widens at the top of the income distribution. For white men, as income increases, so does the likelihood of marriage. But a black man who earns more than $100,000 per year is less likely to have ever married than a black man who earns $75,000 a year. The highest earning black men are more than twice as likely as their white counterparts never to have married. Now, I think I might have an idea of why that might be, but I don't want to answer for black men. So if you're a black man and you have some idea of why you all might be waiting, the more income that you have, why you might be waiting for your partner, drop it in the comments. Despite their impressive salaries, far too many middle-class blacks are just a few paychecks away from economic instability have little to no inheritable wealth, and we know why. Hello, slavery, Jim Crow, Reconstruction. And often provide financial support to extended family members, of the which many of us are doing. So that could be one of the reasons why, even though Black males might be making more, they might be supporting more extended family. And they might need to find a spouse who is amenable to the support that they're having to give their extended family, even though they make in the six figures. Something to think about. <clears throat> anyway, one slices the cake of black financial mobility and stability someone comes up short. Black women, black men, or both, whether single or married. And we're talking about this on Fridays in the book we're reading called The Whiteness of Wealth and why there seems to consistently be 
um, this hindrance to upward mobility, whether you're single or whether you're married. And a lot of that has to do with the way that our tax laws are structured. The negligible wealth of black women and men appears to be a strong factor impacting the black marriage market and specifically black women's options for marrying black men. Understandably, scholars, commentators, and everyday people point many fingers at the carceral state or the imprisoned state as the principal source of the black male shortage and the continued low rates of marriage among black women in recent decades. However, black men and women's inherited wealthlessness is another factor in the equation that warrants examination. If a majority of black men are either waiting to marry or never marry because they are seeking mates with significant higher salaries than their own, mates who are not necessarily forthcoming, then black men's low wealth building potential must be considered when attempting to understand the range of issues placing a tight squeeze on the black marriage market. Black men and women's inherited poverty and wealthlessness, as well as low earning potential rates, are reflected in annual calculations for median incomes for both groups across the decades. For example, in 2017, the median income was $29,962 for black males. That is the median income. So if you're making $30,000 or more, you are above the median income for a black male. However, put your $30,000 a year income in most of these large cities that black people tend to live in because we tend to gravitate towards our enclaves of urban centers, $30,000 a year is, is really stretching it in terms of living above poverty in many urban cities because of the cost of living. In 2017, the median income for black females was $23,400. $99. That was the median. And if you think about those salaries, you're looking at most of the working class positions that are bringing in these kinds of salaries. This is not people who are working in, in law. This is not people who are working in education. This is not people who are working in, um, you know, tech fields. These are what we would call today the essential workers. In 2018, nearly 50% of black children came from households within the bottom fifth of the nation's income distribution. So we have half of the black youth population still being born into the lower income half of, black, of the black population. By comparison, slightly higher than one in 10 white children fell within the same income bracket. But black men and women don't need U.S. Census Bureau reports and social science studies to alert them about their bleak economic circumstances and slim chances for measurable social mobility, their desire to marry mates who can help them tackle poverty and financial instability is the best indication of the sobriety with which they confront their common condition. So if you want to look at some reasons why you might start to see more marriage outside of our ethnicity, 
part of it is if both parties are locked into these low incomes, unless they are getting an increase in education or an increase in income, they're pretty much locked into a certain financial bracket. So this is something to pay attention to and look at. But also, the marriage decline transcends social class. Although scholars debate the underlying factors that have led to black low, uh, low black marriage rates, especially since the 1960s, increasingly there is consensus that the factors cannot be limited to financial instability. The depletion of low-skilled employment opportunities across urban landscapes and mass incarceration. Shifts in cultural attitudes and norms regarding sex, marriage, divorce, and some argue all three are contributing to the marriage decline among African Americans. Despite the debates and different conclusions drawn, one thing seems clear. The marriage decline affects African Americans across our social classes. While some highlight how poor Black women are most affected by the marriage decline, research on a large sample from the 1990s shows that the disparage is negligible. It is argued that marriage opportunities and choices are highly related to the African-American's racial status rather than their class status. Clark's data sets taken from the National Center for Health Statistics indicate that during their childbearing years, ages 14 to 45, Black women across three class divisions have virtually the same chances of being currently married, formerly married, or never married. Black women with college degrees, 21.57%, some college, 20%, or only a high school or general equivalency diploma, 21%, who were married at the time of the survey were basically in the same boat. This holds true for Black women of the three class levels who were formerly married, married college, 8.74%, those who had some college, 9.73%, and those who only had their high school equivalent, or GED, 10.9%, and never married, college, 66% of college grad women never married, some college, 66%, and high school, or GED, 64%. The only notable difference that showed a class disadvantage for Black women in the marriage market appeared when two figures were calculated for black women with less than a high school diploma. Only 15.29% of women in this category were actually married and 73.7% were never married at the time of the survey. So the only time you see a huge jump in a negative way, because some people you know, view marriage as the ultimate which for some people that may not be the choice they make. But you really see a jump and a gap with women who've never graduated from high school. However, 10.83% of women without high school degrees were formerly married and thus actually fared better than women with college degrees and some college education, while virtually rivaling the percentage of women with a high school diploma who were formerly married. Yet, even the variances between the lowest 
class of black women surveyed and the three higher classes were not that significant. What is significant are black women's shared histories of racial oppression and quite often their shared patriarchal expectations of marriage. So let's talk about reconsidering the sources of America's patriarchal marriage ideal. Now, the last time that we looked at this, um, which was a couple of chapters back, we looked at what was called the English Doctrine of Coverture. Um, that word coverture is C-O-V-E-R-T-U-R-E. I encourage people to go and read up on that. And you might be surprised by what you find in this doctrine that has to do with how women are treated and how women are perceived in our society when it comes to marriage. Because that doctrine is what is sort of setting the rules and regulations around marriage here in the United States. Millions of black women and men believe patriarchal marriage is socially and morally compulsory because it was designed by God and revealed in the Bible. However, patriarchal marriage in the United States, its attending nuclear family structure and gender roles, and its perceived biblical foundations are Euro-American traditions and ideations, not biblical ones. Just let that sit in. Let that sink. Some would push back on this point with claims that African patriarchy was resurrected in Black American communities during and after slavery. If this is true, I've yet to see any compelling evidence to actually support such claims. African historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists, especially those studying pre-colonial Africa, have documented diverse marital arrangements and family systems that accorded power and privilege to men and women based on seniority, on kinship, and social belonging. African women were not confined to the domestic sphere. They held political office. They worked and provided for their families. They occupied roles generally assigned to men in Western societies. The concepts of head of household and nuclear family are also notoriously Western. African-American and African family structures privileged consanguineal over affinial ties. They also encompassed matrifocal units, complex conceptions of siblings that included relations Euro-Americans would deem as cousins and members that Euro-Americans would call extended kin. It was also commonplace to privilege maternal heritage within monogamous and polygamous marriage and family systems. This is oftentimes why, you know, especially in African-American culture, you have people that will say, oh, that's my cousin, but they're not related by marriage. They just grew up together in close proximity. Or in some cultures, you will hear them call all of the elder women auntie. Not necessarily because that's their real auntie, but in that societal structure and framework, they consider everybody that's an older woman, auntie or mother. So those are not Western norms. The patriarchy that remains non-negotiable for so many black women and men today is not an African patriarchy. Neither is it God's patriarchy. 
Rather, it is white America's patriarchy. Now, I got a little homework assignment for some of you. I want you to go look up headship theology. Go look that up and go down the rabbit hole like I did <laughs> and find out where this headship theology actually stemmed from. Why did white men get together in a room and decide women's place in the home and in marriage in the 1970s and 1980s? Why did they come up with this thing called headship theology or complementarianism as it's called in some circles? You'll be interested in finding out. Yeah. It is white America's patriarchy, the black community's entrance fee to the dark margins of national belonging. Today, there are countless black purveyors of white American patriarchy. And the most influential voices of this white American patriarchy can be heard on Sunday mornings. The patriarchal marriage ideal is so embedded now in black culture that we can easily forget the historical moment when most African-Americans began to accept and practice it. The post-emancipation period during which the Freemans Bureau's agents and white Southern proprietors required black women and men to adopt patriarchal marriage as a precondition for obtaining labor contracts and livelihood to sustain their families. Oops. The most ardent pushers of patriarchy in the black community are revered black male pastors. This is true. I know a lot of black male pastors and maybe they don't realize they're pushing white male patriarchy, but they are. But black church cultures in general reinforce inherited white American patriarchal values that prescribe this is the role for a husband and this is the role for a wife. A good wife is subordinate and takes a back seat. I can't tell you how many leaders, preachers that I know that believe that. We're not ones, but there are a lot that believe that. And if you are a black woman <laughs> in your marriage who is not taking a back seat, these preachers are going to talk to your husband about why you're not taking a back seat. Ask me how I know. <laughs> a good wife is subordinate and takes a back seat while her husband governs their marriage and family. She handles domestic duties, cooking, cleaning, childcare, and so on. By the same token, a respectable husband is an excellent provider and leader, the authoritative household head and a final arbiter of all family decisions. Now, this can be dangerous because if your husband can't count well and he's the final arbiter of your financial decisions, y'all are going to be going through. It just is what it is, right? Some even believe that a good husband should earn enough money to handle his family's financial needs so that his wife's salary is only supplemental if she works at all. Now, I want you to think about that idea, okay? The husband should be able to handle all the financial needs so that his wife's salary is supplemental if she works at all. Well, that works great for white America 
who has stolen wealth <laughs> and a 228-year wealth lead on everybody else. That works. But if we go back to the median income for a black man and a black woman, okay, the math ain't mathing for that ideal. It's not. And if you drag that ideal into a situation in your household where the math ain't mathing, and your wife says, well, you're supposed to be taking care of everything, and you're looking around like, how am I supposed to take care of everything on $28,000 a year? So now you are injecting this sense of inferiority into a marriage that was doing fine without this mess right here. I'm just saying. These are ideals that have crept into black family that is actually breeding a, a level and a measure of discontent because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. All of these husbandly roles and responsibilities are tied as well to notions of ideal manhood. Trouble arises not so much regarding who does what in a marriage, who is the caregiver and who is the breadwinner, but whether those actions and accomplishments are valued unequally or tied to norms that affix manhood and husbands to stereotypic masculine tropes and womanhood and wives to stereotypic feminine tropes. And these tropes are running rampant in our community right now that have nothing to do with us. I like to say that it's white supremacy speaking through black bodies. Naturalized conceptions of what it means to be a husband and a wife do not leave room for adjustments, personal style, talents, skills, abilities, preferences, flexibility, and growth. So if you're going to run your marriage like a white male patriarchal ideal, just understand you're going to run into some things that's going to say does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. And then you have to ask yourself the question as married people, what am I going to do when it does not compute? Am I going to throw out my relationship because it doesn't fit the white male patriarchal norms? Am I going to devalue my spouse because we don't fit this cookie cutter norm that fits the people for whom it was made? Led by their pastors and sometimes spiritual mentors, many African-Americans appeal to Christian biblical texts to justify their patriarchal conceptions of marriage as consistent with God's revelation. They cite passages from Genesis creation stories in chapters 1 and 2, noting that God created Eve to be Adam's helper. But if you actually dig a little bit deeper into that word, it actually means ezer or warrior. Hmm. Hello, woman kings. <laughs> they also cite many Pauline and Deuteropauline epistles that they believe provide instructions for gender-based spousal duties and roles. Contextualizing and interrogating the authorial intent 
of the persons who wrote these and other related scriptural passages are beyond the aims of this volume. And there are many prominent African-American and other biblical experts who have combined a range of tools and methods to situate these scriptural passages and texts in their actual historical, cultural, linguistic, and literary context. Instead, it is perhaps more interesting to interrogate why Black Christians are unwilling to apply their same critical skills they use to decode and interpret the texts they read and hear in other country, cu cultural contexts, graphic novels, poems, comic books, hip-hop lyrics, and the like, when reading and discerning the meanings of scriptures. The diverse historical contexts in which the books of the Protestant and Roman Catholic Bibles were written and disseminated, and the processes through which the actual Bibles were compiled and ideologically driven, politically fraught, and even polemically contested. If certain factions within the early church had been more influential, the West and the people it conquered would have a different Catholic and Protestant Bible today. Christian Bibles are compilations of multi-genre texts written across epochs for specific purposes and translated from their original languages into Western language, often in service of the ruling class who could deploy the scriptures to pacify their oppressed subjects. Fun fact, slave and master was not in the scriptures, it was inserted. Another fun fact, King James specifically said, I want anybody to be able to read this and interpret it based upon their own lens when it came to denominations because he did not want to rock the boat. So when someone says, when I read a text, it seems like you can take any scripture and argue for any side. Well, the reality is, especially if you're reading from the King James, you can <laughs> because that's what he intended. The books of the Bible reflect both divine revelation and Hebrew and Christian people's attempts to access, interpret, and apply divine revelation within the boundaries of their cultures, traditions, and worldviews. Many leading Bible experts and theological scholars argue that the Bible contains both the word of God and the words of humans. This means it also contains the cultures, the power struggles, the ideologies of humans that are often mistaken for the word of God. Most people uh, would separate this as prescriptive and descriptive, right? There are certain things, if you read a biblical text, that are prescriptive. In other words, they're kind of moral, moral sayings. And then there are things that are descriptive, like David's son sexually assaulted his daughter. Somebody could say, well, that's in the Bible, so God condoned it. Or, well, it's in the Bible, it happened, so I can do that. We would look at them like they were crazy, wouldn't we, right? Because just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that you should go around doing it. Most of us understand that. Most of us have common sense to understand that, right? But we seem to not understand that about other things. So just because something is being described as an action in the Bible doesn't mean that we are told to go out and do it. Yeah. The author says here, my seven years of theological studies training led me to agree and encourage black Christians 
to embrace informed and intelligent interpretive approaches to the Bible. In every domain of life that demands expertise, we don't hesitate to consult an expert to handle problems. We wouldn't seek advice from a layperson about a serious legal matter or health concern. We would solicit expert advice from a lawyer or a doctor. However, when it comes to studying the scriptures and understanding biblical texts, many Christians dismiss too quickly scholarly experts who are also persons of deep Christian faith with the credentials and training to teach about the far and distant words and worlds of the Bible and the eras that produced its contents. In addition, God's revelation is not limited to the Bible. We live in a complex world, a digital and globalized age, far removed from the epochs that produced the text of the Bible. Yet Christians testify constantly about the effects of God's messages and continued revelation over their lives. I'm going to start there, stop there, because we are going to continue this conversation next week. That was quite a bit. I know that was a lot to chew on. So let's chew the cud. We've got about 20 minutes. And if you would like to come on and chop it up with me a little bit about what we've read today, we've covered quite a bit. Um, I welcome you to come on. And I knew one of my co-hosts would be on. Because hopefully we can add you today without any issue. Dum da da dum dum da dum. Good morning. Good morning. You know I'm coming. Yep. And even in my childhood, that's the way. 
Uh-oh, you're breaking up a little bit, Pastor. So again, and you bring out a really good point there because somebody going to be mad, but it's okay because we got to tell the truth here, right? Uh You're saying that this black man should be able to have an income that takes care of his entire household where his wife doesn't have to work, but yet you're denying him all of the opportunities that would allow him to do that. And, and let's not forget that your white wives for generations did not work because our ancestors and forefathers were the maids, the housekeepers, the nannies. We were the ones doing the work. So the way that your structure works is on the backs of our ancestors. So how are you telling us to be a part of a structure that only works if you are standing on our backs. And if we do buy into that structure, then that means that we have to find or create an underclass of people whose backs we stand on Uh in order to do that. So in essence, someone wants to turn you into an oppressor in order to achieve their ideal, you would have to become like your oppressor in order to achieve uh-huh. that ideal. And I don't think a lot of people are thinking that through. Like, well, you would have to become stable on, on, on Django. <laughs> or you would go to another country as an African-American and begin to exploit the labor class there. Yeah. And that is what's happening, by the way. And people don't want to get into that about how some of the black elites are exploiting the labor class in other countries of people that look like them. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a whole other segment. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's like <clears throat> when you want to aspire to something, you have to look at what the what is the root of what it is that you're aspiring to. Is the root colonialism, imperialism, and oppression? Is that what we're aspiring to? What is the ground floor of what they've laid that they're trying to get you to duplicate? What did it take for them to get that ground floor? And are you willing to do that? Unfortunately, some are. 
And what of your soul will you lose in the process trying to do that? Uh-huh. So. Yes. Anything else you want to we, point we out have, from the reading? We, well, we, are, we have to, yeah, because, uh, uh, well, you touched on the finances a little bit there, and uh, it's like, we... I'm going to go, I'm going I'm to uh, bring something to my list, the king of power phrase, okay? You tell us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, you're not even going to give us any boots. Oh, and we coming to him next week. Now, That's where we're now, starting next yeah. week. <laughs> okay, okay. Now, 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 when we, now get this, now when we, when we make our own boots and try to stop them up, mm -hmm. you try to, you take the boots from us. Mm -hmm. Rosewood. Uh, 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 Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. uh, Black Wall Street, mm -hmm. and many others. Mm -hmm. They came up on their own without any help and did better than the white towns around them. Mm -hmm. And what happened? Oh, we got to come up in there. We got to say a black man with the white woman. We got to kill y'all and burn y'all towns down because we're jealous. We don't want y'all to prosper. Because a society was a society was being built on principles of community and unity that had uh -huh. nothing to do with them right so we've got to tear right. down any kinds of structures of success that are not centered around eurocentric ideals of economic growth and impact if it works and it's not our system, we got to get rid of it. Got to get rid of it, yeah. And speaking of such, uh, I like what a lot of black people did, some other people of color, when they got the stimulus money. Mm -hmm. They actually started their own business. Mm -hmm. And now the government is saying, <laughs> and now the government is saying, oh, y'all started businesses? We gotta we gotta adjust some some margins. We gotta adjust some interest rates. Yep. We gotta make yep. sure some of these businesses that y'all started shut down. Uh huh. Exactly. Mm hmm. That's so, what it's about. You, you were, listen, you were never supposed to put yourself in a position where you could prosper. You were supposed to just spend that money. Right. Mm hmm. Basically, throw it away. Mm hmm. But you were you were smart. It was supposed you to go back into the. It was supposed to go back into their economic engine, uh -huh. not be see, invested in kept. Now see, this is the thing. This is the thing. The bottom line of one of us starting our own businesses is we are, we are the biggest consumers in this country. We spend more money as a people group than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So if we start our own businesses and we have more money to spend, then, doesn't that help the economic growth? But the, the system of oppression is so powerful and so strong, we, they'll cut off their nose despite their face. We don't want y'all to have it. Mm -hmm. so we're going we're gonna to damage our financial system by shutting you down because mm -hmm. we don't want you to prosper. Well, I mean, it's the, it's the idea of the permanent underclass. So uh -huh. anytime you're shaking... Anytime you're doing anything to shake the permanent underclass that they've created, you're going to run into issues. Anytime you say, okay, 
Anytime you say, I'm going to lift the bottom 20%. If you are considered in the top 10% or even the top 1%, and you got, you are going to try to you build a program of any sort, any kind, to lift the bottom 20%, you're going to face pushback. Uh-huh. And there's, unfortunately, there's not enough black people in the top 10% or even the top 1% that understand the white lash they're going to face when they start uh-huh. trying to, to, to lift the bottom 20% in America. I'm not talking about Africa. Right, in, right, in America. I'm talking about America. America. It is uh-huh. a specific group of people that America does not want lifted. You, you, can, go, you can go lift the Ethiopians. <laughs> you can uh-huh. go lift the South Africans. Yeah. It's the black Americans, the descendants of the formerly enslaved, that they don't want you lifting. Uh-huh. We spoke, we touched on that, I think it was last week, we talked about, about acres. Mm-hmm. I mean, went to Africa, he's building a whole community there. Mm-hmm. They're embracing this man. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, what, what do you need? What do you need us to do? You know, they're paving the way. Come on, do it. You're not going to get that here. Mm-mm. So, so if people ask, well, why are they doing it over there? Because they don't allow you to do it here. Mm-hmm. They won't allow you to do it here. And, I'm gonna, also- and I'm going to say something else. If one to three million African Americans got up and decided we're going to just leave the country we're not telling nobody. We're just going to look at each other. We're going to have that, that, that knowing going. <laughs> uh-huh. And we're going to get our passports. And we just up and leave. One million people, one to four million people, say over a 30-day period, up and leave this country, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> uh-huh. And they already know this. Uh-huh. One to four million. That's all it takes. One to four million uh-huh. people get their passports and say, you know what? I'm tired of America. Deuces. It's going to be a problem. Uh-huh. It's going to be a problem. They can say whatever they want to say. <laughs> but that would be that would be a serious dent. In the yeah, economy. It will cut off their nose to fight their face again. Because if you know this, why why are you trying to do something to prevent it from happening? <laughs> maybe maybe they think that okay, we're not gonna think like that because we love being oppressed and depressed and murdered out in the streets so much that oh we're not gonna think about leaving this country. Because they don't think that they don't think they don't think that that many black Americans are ready to leave, but I can tell you it's more than that. Oh, yeah. It's more than that. But let one to four million of us decide to go in one day and see what happens. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They'll be trying to, Congress will be trying to pass all kinds of emergency acts. <laughs> uh-huh. They'll, they'll have some overnight bills about who can use their passport and who can't. And all the restrictions will be centered around targeting black Americans. I'm telling you, like, 
We know what it is. We know what it is. But as a people, we've got to start having these conversations a little bit more. We've got to start saying we need to get back to our own practices. And even if we don't get back to our own practices, we need to develop practices that work for us. Uh Bottom line. Maybe we don't go back to traditional African practices, but we do need to develop practices that actually work for us as a group of people. I'm going to end on this. (laughs) I've been watching two series. One series I watched was called The Big Day. It's about Indian weddings. And then there's another one I watched called um, Indian Matchmaker, because I'm always interested in seeing what other cultures um, feel about marriage, think about marriage, um, how they're carrying carrying out different things. All I'm going to say is <laughs> there's a reason why these other cultures have maintained over time. And a part of that is not letting people come in and tell them what their cultural tradition should be. Uh-huh. So has India modernized in some ways? Are there things about Indian culture that that we can learn from? Absolutely. One of the things is you don't get to tell them what traditions they're going to celebrate and what they're not. You don't get to tell them what what gods they're going to include or not. You don't get to tell them how um, involved their ancestors are their grandparents, their parents are going to be in the ceremony. Uh-huh. Now, you, you touched on something, let me say this real quick. Who is the group of people throughout the Bible that would mix and blend and adopt the other people's culture? Who is it? Wasn't that, that the Hebrew? The group of people All I'm gonna say is if you if you wanna if you wanna get some interesting insights into the the marriage culture and why India has a multi-billion dollar wedding industry right now. Take a look at those series. You're gonna see something. It's very eye-opening. I will say that. It's very eye-opening. Because even in all of their modernization, even in, in um you know, their women and everything deciding to be independent and going into these different fields. They have said, listen, I'm doing this, but when it comes to my traditions, this is what we're doing. Uh Uh They specifically say, we want to strive to honor our ancestors, strive to honor our cultural traditions, strive to honor the gods that we serve in this process and i think that there's a lot to be said from that thank you pastor ben for this conversation and discussion this has been another episode of daring dialogues and i've been your host today shante charles 
I hope that this conversation has stirred something in you to go study some more, to go research some of the terms that we talked about today, headship theology, um, the doctrine of coveture, the word for Eve and help meet, Ezer, E-Z-E-R. Go look these words up. Do a little bit of digging yourself. Um, looking at the origins of the white male patriarchy and as the writer said, after the Freedmen's Bureau, in order to get those contracts, in order to even get any labor contracts, they had to adopt certain patriarchal norms and assimilate into Western culture in order to even be given a chance. And so take all of that into consideration as you're thinking about black and black men and black women in our relationship future in this country. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host, Shantae Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be what, Pastor Ben? Light. Be light. Take care, everyone, and God bless.